Well, as the plates make their way around, uh, I'll invite you, if you have a Bible in front of you, either on paper or a device or whatever it might look like, uh, to open up with me to Nehemiah chapter 2. Uh, after, after a break, we were back in the book of Nehemiah this morning. If you've got uh, the digital version, I don't need to tell you how to find it in your digital Bibles. You can just find the search function and click and away you go. If you've got the classic papers, you can kind of put it in the middle, open it right to the middle of the Bible. That'll land you probably in the Psalms. Flip back a few pages and you'll get into the historical books, including Nehemiah. If uh, you remember where we've been, if you've been tracking with us, if you're visiting with us, welcome. Great to have you. Nehemiah is a, is a historical book. It tells us a story. It's, an, it's a narrative about the history of Israel. We were introduced to Nehemiah, who was serving in a foreign king's court. He was a servant of King Artaxerxes. And so he, at the time when this book opened up, was, was living uh, kind of in the king's winter palace as the king's cupbearer, serving him there. Uh, we said he was about 1,500 kilometers from home. Uh, so it's you know, about a two-month journey to get from where he was back to Jerusalem, which was home for him. Uh, he was living out the promises of God there and that God had told his people in the books of the law in Exodus and Leviticus that if you, if you follow me, you've watched me bring you out of Egypt. If you follow me, if you obey the way that I've instructed you to live, you'll be good here. I've given you this promised land. It was described as being flowing with milk and honey. It's a prosperous land. And if you stay true to me, things will be good. But God promised, if you don't, if you go after other gods, if you go after the foreign gods, then you will be removed from this land. And Nehemiah is living this out. He is living out the exile, a long way from home, serving a foreign king who, who really couldn't care much less about conquered gods. Yeah, here we are. So let me ask you, ask you a question before we jump into the text. Have you ever in your life recently, a, a while ago perhaps, looked at something in front of you and thought, this is just impossible. An impossible task. Anybody had those? Maybe in the midst of some right now? It doesn't matter. You, you look at this thing, you know that it has to be done. You, you, you know that you know that you've got to go through this thing or, or, or it's got to be done, but no matter how you cut it, no matter what angle you look at this thing, you're just like, this is not going to happen. I cannot see a way through this. Let me reshape the question a little bit. If you would call yourself a follower of Jesus, have you ever read the Bible and got to a section where it seems like the text is saying, okay, do this. This is what my people do. And you've looked at it and thought, not a chance. How, how on earth do I get through this thing? How do I live this thing out? Anyone, anyone there? Just me? A couple of you, thank you. Well, it was embarrassing to just be me, so thanks for jumping in there. Now, Nehemiah knew. He knew that he had to do something about Jerusalem. You remember in, in chapter 1, verse 3, some brothers from Jerusalem make their way to him, a couple-month journey to where he's at, and he's probably expecting, Nehemiah is, that things are maybe looking up in Jerusalem. There's been some of the exiles that have been able to go back and start kind of reconstructing the city and, and, and God's law is being preached again. That happens in the book of Ezra. And so I would guess he's hopeful that 
things are looking up. But these brothers come and they say to him, it's not good. The walls are broken. The gates are burned. We are disgraced. We are a disgraced people. And in a more honor and shame culture than we live in right now, that was a big deal. And right away, Nehemiah knew he needed to do something. He's a long way from home, but he knew he had to get there. Remember, we described it as, as needing to walk from about Winnipeg to Canmore was how far he was from home. But he knew that God was calling him to do something. This was an extraordinary circumstance. He's two months away. He's in exile. He's a servant in a king's court. Again, that couldn't have cared probably much less about this conquered God of this conquered people. But God stepped in big time to help him, didn't it? And so we've got to this point where Nehemiah has prayed for months. He's planned and prepared of, if, if I were to go back, this is what I would need to get there. This is what I would need when I get there. I'm going to run into trouble as I travel through these areas. I, I've got this plan. And finally, after months, we said maybe three to five months of praying and planning, he shows up in the king's court one day, and the king says, something's wrong, Nehemiah. What's going on? And he took that as a sign from God to say, okay, here it is, king. The city that my ancestors are buried in is destroyed and disgraced. And it just, it's just, it's crushing me. And I feel like I need to do something about it. Now, this king didn't have to do anything. He could have said, forget you. Get out of my court. You're, you're a downer. Get lost. I'll get a new cupbearer. I'll bring someone else in to do your job because I just, I don't want any part of this. But instead, the king said, what do you need to do? What are you asking me for? And he said, well, I, I got to go back. Oh, boy. There we go. I feel good. I'm not vibrating from the back of my head. It's a good sign. The king said, so what are you asking me for? And at first he says, I need, I need time to go back. King said, okay. And he could have stopped there, but Nehemiah said, oh, by the way, I'll also need, I'll need some letters to grant me safe passage. Uh, I'll, I'll need permission to go to kind of your outfitters, to, to the king's Home Depot to get supplies. And it, it's going to take a while. And the king said, great. And in that moment, Nehemiah said, you know what, the gracious hand of God was on me. And that's a running theme through these books, isn't it? So now we get to chapter 2, verse 9. The hand of God is on him, and he travels. He prayed, he'd planned, he'd called on God to do what God promised to do, and the king let him go. He sent him with those letters, remember. And then in verse 9, he says, well, I went. I made it. I got west of the, the Euphrates. I gave the letters to the people that needed the letters. They let me travel through. Oh, and look at this. The king also sent me with some officers from his army. I had, a, I had a military guard to make sure I got where I was going. But even there, right at the beginning still, verse 9, verse 10, there's a, there's a, a stirring of trouble. We read, when, when Sanblat and Tobiah heard that someone had come to pursue the prosperity of the Israelites, they were greatly displeased. Now, we're not totally sure who these two characters are, but they're clearly influential they're clearly not interested in the prosperity of Israel. Uh, it would be safe to say they are Israel's enemies. And so what I don't think, what is not happening here 
is we're not just getting this hint of, there were a couple of guys who thought that's a bad idea and went on with their lives. There's some danger stirring here. Some high-ranking officials of enemies of Israel were not happy that someone had come to work on this project. Let me ask you this. When you came to Jesus, when you came to know him, you started to follow him, did you think God's gracious hand is now on my life? It will be smooth sailing the rest of the way. Anyone else ever, ever made that mistake? I have. Goodness. But we know it's, it's not always okay, is it? It's not always smooth sailing. There, there is opposition. My follow-up question is this. Is that okay? Are, are we okay with that? That it's not smooth sailing? And then the, kind of the next deeper question, we're just trying to peel some layers off the onion here. Is God big enough to walk us through that opposition? And I know for many of us, like, yes, of course he is. These are like, I learned this in Sunday school generations ago. Uh, where are we going here, preacher? Let's get moving. When the rubber hits the road, is God big enough? Because that's a different question. I was challenged this week. I was in a, like a, a Zoom call with some friends who were kind of asking me some questions and challenging me some things. And one of the things they said was, Sean, it seems like you're, you know, you're not, you know, you're, you're, you're headed this direction. You're not totally sure about this. I, I, they said, I know that you know that God is good and that God is big. But the things you're describing, you've got it here. Is God big enough here? Man, we need people around us to call that stuff out in us, don't we? When we are building the kingdom of God, People will promise you. People will oppose us. So what do we do? What did Nehemiah do? I, I think there's no question that he expected opposition in this path. Otherwise, he wouldn't have accepted the military guards even get there, right? If he didn't expect to ruffle some feathers and, and have some conflict along the way, when the king said, here, take some of my infantry, take some of my cavalry, he would have said, no, no, it's fine. This is going to be a cakewalk. It's got to go on a small building project and I'll be back. He expects opposition, but does he quit? Help me out here. Does he quit? No, no he does not. We look at verse 11 through to 16. We read, he says, After I arrived in Jerusalem, and I'd been there three days. I'm not sure what he did for those three days. He probably got his, his bearings, got settled in a little bit. He said, I got up at night. I took a few people with me. I didn't yet tell anyone what God had put on my heart to do for the city. But he kept on going. He kept on going. And I suspect, we know this of Nehemiah, right? We know that Nehemiah prays first, right? We saw that a couple times in earlier chapters. I suspect that as Nehemiah saw the city on the horizon, what do you think the first thing he did was? God, I can already see there's trouble. What, what, what are we doing here? As he approached the gates after that long journey, oh God, what's happening here? Your, your glory. I, I long to see your glory. I have this heart for your people and it's broken. He kept on. He kept preparing. He kept going. He knew there was going to be opposition and he kept on going. Now what does that have to do with us? 
How do we go and do this reconnaissance mission that he did? He got up at night and he went and looked close. And again, I bet that evening that he toured around, it reads that uh, he went with his donkey. He went to some places. There are spots that it seems like he expected to be able to pass through on his animal, but couldn't. So that things are bad, maybe even worse than he expected. I bet every moment of that night, God, may this wall be restored. God, this gate, it's supposed to mean this. It's supposed to be for this. Can we get, how do we figure this out? How do we do this? 2022 in Canmore, we've got, we've, we've got the same job. We, too, need to be going out on these recon missions, looking around us, maybe grabbing a small group. Don't declare what we're about to do just yet, but go around and look around the town. God, what are you doing here? Where, where is there just a heartbreaking need for more of you here? We need to be like, like, like missionaries going to a new culture for the very first time. Because 2022 Canmore, I, I've only been here five years, but I would guess it's nothing, I know it's nothing like five years ago. It's changed a ton. And for those who have been here longer, I suspect it looks vastly different than it did 10 years ago, 20 years ago. Because the pace at which our world is changing is, is unbelievable. And so we can't assume that the things are the same today as they were five years ago, 10 years ago, a year ago even, right? Even the things, the acceleration that has happened in culture through COVID, it's unbelievable. And so we need to not rest on the laurels of this happened, this will work, let's do this. We got to go back in as missionaries. What's important to this culture? What are they chasing after? What lies are they believing? What truth needs to speak into this? How do we repair these walls? How do we repair the glory of God in this place? We got to go on these missions. We got to understand this as well. Wherever we are, our neighborhoods, our towns, our cities. Nehemiah tells us about the tour he takes. There's more details there than we'll look at this morning, but he tells us about this. And look how he responds. His, his final uh, kind of summation of what he saw was exactly the same as what he was told in chapter 1. The walls are broken and the gates are destroyed by fire. And verse, verse 16, he says, the people, and he lists a bunch of people, didn't know where I'd gone or what I was doing. He says that I hadn't yet told the Jews, the priests, the officials, or the rest of those who were doing the work. Now, this is a really important verse. I, this is one that the preachers love to preach, right? Look at the list of people he named. Nehemiah knew good and well that he wasn't taking a leave of absence from service to the king to come and do the job himself. That would have been impossible. He knows good and well that he couldn't do it alone. One writer says Nehemiah knows clearly that he needs the people of God to accomplish the will of God. Look at the list again. I hadn't told the Jews, the priests, the nobles, the officials, and just in case somebody thought, okay, I'm not on that list, I'm, not, I'm okay, or the rest of the people. That would do the work. They didn't know what was going on yet. He knew he needed the people of God to accomplish the will of God. So he had studied the Bible. He had prayed. He had acted. And now at this point, he summons the people together to join him in pursuing God's kingdom. Let me, again, fast forward back to us here today as we think about building the kingdom. Let me tell you this as clear as I can. I cannot build God's kingdom myself. There's, there's, a, there's a spot for me. There's a role for me. 
but Trinity Bible Church will not build God's kingdom by me, myself, as your pastor. And I've got this in my notes. Let me make it really clear. I have yet to be asked or told, you're the pastor, you do all the work. Thank you, Jesus. That's not the case for everywhere. Now, I can try. I've, I've got some gifts. I've got some skills. I've got some, I was going to say administration, but I don't have much of that. I can try and do it all myself, but I will promise you things will get left behind. Things will get forgotten. It will not go well. And if, if you have come to this church and said, okay, the pastor's going to do the work. I'm here. The pastor will do the work. You will be disappointed. I will let you down. I promise you. And then if you think, well, I'm going to a different church where the pastor will do all the work, I will also promise you, he will let you down. Because the pastor cannot do all the work. And you may look and say, well, it's, I don't expect Sean to do all the work. We've got four other elders. There's five of them. They can do all the work. I will speak for my part of the elders. And guys, I think you'll nod along with me. We will disappoint you if you expect us to do all the work. There is a role for everyone. Look at that list in verse 16. Maybe some of the people you'd expect and the rest of the people. Love it. Love it. One of our values that we have said we want to espouse and grow in here at Trinity is that ownership matters. We're not just creating a space for people to come and consume content. We're not just trying to put on a show so that Sunday morning you can drive in at 9.15 or 11 or tune in online, hear some music, hear somebody talk for a while, maybe go long, and then get on with the rest of your life. There is something for everyone to do as we build the kingdom. You have probably heard me use the analogy of a cruise ship versus a battleship before. If you haven't, it doesn't matter if you haven't or if you have, you're going to hear it again this morning. On a cruise ship, what's the goal? If I'm going to buy myself a cruise for a holiday, holidays are good. Don't hear that holidays are bad. I'm going to find a boat, a big one. It's going to be a big one with lots of stuff to do, with lots of food to eat. I'm going to make sure it leaves from somewhere warm, travels around somewhere warm, and comes back somewhere warm. And I'm going to get on that sucker. I'm going to put my bags in the cabin. I'm going to put on my flip-flops and my shorts, and that's it. I'm going to wear flip-flops and shorts for a week or however long I'm on the boat. And I'm going to get up, I'm going to stroll into a restaurant, I'm gonna, somebody's going to feed me. I'm going to stroll out of the deck, I'm going to sit in the sun. I'm going to get bored sitting in the sun. So I'm going to go to the climbing wall, I'm going to find the pool, I'm going to do all the things. I'm going to put in zero effort except to get my shorts and sandals from the lounge chair to the restaurant to all the things. Somebody else will wait on me hand and foot that whole trip. That is not the church. Some of us treat church like that, or have in the past, and we're, we're trying to learn to come out of that. Welcome, the pastor will do this, and an elder will do this, and a musician will do this, and, and then I'll carry on. Especially as we get into next week in Nehemiah chapter 4, we need to be reminded that we are in a battle. This is not peacetime. We're not living in peacetime. We are living in wartime, and the church is a battleship. Consider the difference. On a battleship, Every person on that boat has a job. Are they the same? No. Somebody's got to clean toilets. Somebody's got to make sure the boat doesn't crash. And everything in between, right? But everybody has a job on that battleship. And if somebody doesn't pull their weight, it's a problem. The mission is at risk. I, I said in the first service, I guess, 
I'm super excited to go see the new Top Gun. I, I haven't seen it yet. Like, super excited. So for this moment, because I'm excited about Top Gun, let me adjust from battleship to aircraft carrier, right? You need someone to make sure that the plane coming in doesn't hit the plane going out. And if somebody drops the ball, there's problems. The church is a battleship. We are at war. This is wartime. There is a spot for everybody on this ship. Now, of course, that means we need to wrestle with the balance of having a laser focus on how we do ministry. That, that, that battleship, it's got orders, and it knows what to do to get through them, right? They don't get, get out in the sea and think, well, you know, we were supposed to go this way, but uh, it's warmer on this route, so we'll go here. And we're supposed to be deployed to this country, but, you know, I have him into this other one, so we're going to go there, right? It has focused orders, and it goes after it. And so for the church, for this church, we need to continue to discern what that, that laser focus for us is. And that means there will be some good things that we don't do. I never want to say never, but I would suspect Trinity Bible Church will never, there's that word, likely never open a thrift store. You know why? Because there's another church in town that has launched one, and they're doing great with it. So why would we do it too? Let's support them. Let's volunteer if they need, let, let, whatever. Let's support them. Similarly, I would expect, maybe it's a little more likely, but I would suspect that we would never launch a midweek community meal open to everyone. Again, maybe, but there's someone else doing a great job of that already. So instead of us trying to, to, to duplicate it, let's support them financially, voluntarily, go after them so they can take care of that thing, the Anglican Church can take care of that thing, and we'll be really good at what we're doing over here. Maybe you've heard that we got we got to stay in our we got to find our lane and we got to stay in our lane. There's something about long weekend traffic that like kills me. I've become a small town guy now. I like grew up in the cities. I didn't mind traffic. Now going back to the city, there's something that is when somebody starts to drift out of their lane, right? Especially these guys pulling trailers. And they start coming. Stay in our lane. We got to stay in our lane. So where are we at? Nehemiah has prayed, he has prepared, he's been sent by the king of Persia. There's a sense of rising opposition, probably even danger. He's settled in, he's toured the city at night, which tells us there probably is danger lurking. And then he calls the people together. He fi maybe finally calls the people together. Look at verse 17, he says, You see the trouble we're in, you guys. Jerusalem is in ruins and its gates have been burned down. Guys, look. Things are not going well here. This city is meant to represent God, to display his glory to the nations, and it's a disaster. And it's interesting, this crowd that he was with, they probably wouldn't have looked around for the first time and been like, oh yeah, the gates have burned down. I haven't noticed that smoke for the last while. They were there. They, they just needed someone to kick him in the butt and say, we got to do something about this. I suspect, again, there's some suspicion going into the text here, but I think it's good. I suspect he said more than this one line to this crowd. I bet he was a great speaker. I bet he was a great order, and he kind of rallied the crowd together, and he didn't just say, guys, it's busted. Let's do something. Maybe he did, but 
But I suspect he, he, he got the crowd kind of worked up and said, this is supposed to represent God's glory. How are we doing that? You guys have been living here. You've been living through this. What are we doing? And the people said what? Or his next call was, let's rebuild the wall so that we will no longer be a disgrace. And I think you could read into that, so that our God will no longer be disgraced. Because remember, in those days, the people were far more in tuned with the gods of their people. And if my God beat your God, clearly he's stronger. And so if, if the temple for my God has been destroyed, clearly that's a sign of weakness to everyone else around it, around us. But Nehemiah is so focused on God's power and his kingdom and his glory. He says, this is not good. Church, look at the world around us. It takes 15 seconds on a Twitter feed, Facebook, whatever they call it, news feed, Instagram, the front page of the newspaper, the first five minutes of a news broadcast. The world is broken. The world that was created to give God glory, to display his glory, look out the windows. These mountains that are designed to point us to the Heavenly Father to, to see His gracious provision for us. It's there, but people aren't seeing it. I cannot change Canmore myself. But God never reigned that in. So we want to go and we want to look around and see what God puts on our hearts, where we might step into, into the gaps to point people to Jesus. Some of the language we use here at Trinity is that we want to see people transformed into fully devoted followers of Christ. I don't want to, and I hope, I, I'm confident that I'm growing in this, but call me out if I'm not. I don't want to come up here for 30 to 45 minutes on a Sunday and just give you more information as if you need more information about God. I pray and trust that God will use his word through this dull instrument of a pastor to bring transformation to your life because there's nothing better than life in him. Nothing. So we long to see people transformed. We long to see marriages strengthened. I reminded again this week of a classmate of one of my kids. His parents had just split up. Kids, man. We long to see marriages strengthened, families rebuilt. I'll tell you, I, I try to, to read broadly and read a fair bit. Of all the studies and articles and, and blog posts that I've read, I have never come across one, and maybe just be, I haven't come across it, but I've never come across one that says anything other than the best situation for a child to be raised in is with their mother and father. Do you need to get into genders here? female mother, male father, who love each other and love that kid. The best outcome for children is that. Nobody has shown anything different I, that I've read. Maybe it's there. So we want to invest in families and say, this, this is what it's all about. So that's kind of where we're at as a, as a church. But I think what's going on in this passage hits a little bit home. Let me, let me get a little bit more up in your business. See, God's name today 
is no longer represented by a temple and a wall in Jerusalem, is it? Where, now that Jesus has come, died, been raised again, here's a hint, given us the Holy Spirit, where is the temple of God? It's in the lives of the people of God. We are the ones that are now tasked to display God's glory to the world around us. How are your walls and gates? Are they in ruins? Are they under construction? Where, where do you need a, a repair work done in your life? We all, nobody's got it together, okay? I'll throw that out there in case you need to hear it. Nobody's walls and gates are perfect. Where do you need the Lord to work in your life? Is it in your marriage? Marriage, marriage takes work. Can I throw that out there too? Is it with family? Is it with your kids or with your parents? Is it your, your, your eye gate? Do, do you need a better filter on your eyes of what you let yourself look at? Is it your, the guards on your eyes and ears, the things that you listen to that are, are impacting you, whether it's podcasts or radio shows or music that is implanting ideas into your head? Maybe, maybe you feel like your life is in ruins just like Jerusalem when Nehemiah showed up. John, the walls are broken. The gates, gates are burned. It, like, I don't even know where to go. I don't even know what to do. Let me encourage you with this. That there is a... Nehemiah has done some amazing things so far and will continue. But there is a better leader than Nehemiah that every single one of us has access to. He will do a better job of delivering us from danger. He is more zealous for God's name to be made great, for God's kingdom to come, and for God's will to be done. Jesus came to give his life so that every single person who calls on his name will be saved. Jesus is the better construction manager, the better Nehemiah. And God has worked his saving work, his salvation out through Jesus, we can trust him. We wrap up verses 17 to 18. They are disgraced people. There's derision. There's opposition coming. We see these names pop up again, right? Sanballat and Tobiah, and they're joined by one more, Gershom the Arab. And they come, they see this gathering perhaps, and, and, and they go, what are you doing? Are you rebelling against the king? And again, a little bit of thinking into what this might have looked like. I suspect these three didn't come up. Maybe Nehemiah, is on, you know, he's, he's perched on a, you know, a stone or something so he can see the people. I suspect they didn't walk up to the front and say, psst, hey, you know, if you're asking people to do this, it's going to ruffle some feathers. Right? I, I don't think they were trying to help him save face. I think they were, they were posturing. I think maybe they showed up with maybe some armed guards of their own, and, and this, this was a flex. You guys have been crushed once before. You want to go against us again? You think Nehemiah knew that he was rebelling against the king at that point? A hundred percent. A hundred percent. When we, even in this moment, when we stop and pray, God, your will be done. God, your kingdom come. Do you realize 
that you're rebelling against the king? When we leave this place and think, think about advocating for the nuclear family, for what the Bible has to say on finances, on relationships, on what, do you realize that you're rebelling against the king? The king of this world? We have an enemy. This is wartime. And so we're, we're at a point, we're at a decision-making point. And Nehemiah is too. They come and they say, what are you doing? Are you going to carry on with this? And look at how the people respond to Nehemiah's call. Let's build a wall. Let's go do it. So that we're no, long, no longer a disgrace. Let's get started. And then it reads that their hands were strengthened to do this good work. I was thinking of a good analogy. I'm not sure I could find a better one. It doesn't mean this one is good, but I couldn't find who remembers Popeye the Sailor Man? Anybody? The cartoons, right? He got in a little bit of trouble. There was some opposition. And what did he do? He opened his can of spinach. He ate it up. And what happened? His hands were strengthened. That was maybe a poor biblical analogy. But next time you read this text, you'll think, oh, that pastor said Popeye. And you'll remember it. And that's part of my job. Building the kingdom. Let me suggest this too. Building the kingdom today is even better than rebuilding the wall in the temple then. Let me tell you why. When they built the wall and the kingdom to display the glory of God, where was the glory of God being displayed? Jerusalem. How many of us live in Jerusalem and can see the glory of God in the wall and the temple? None. If the temple is in us and we are building God's kingdom here, who gets to see the glory of God? Everybody around us. This is way better. Way better. Maybe less manual labor, too, but that's a slight benefit. So how do we strengthen ourselves for it? How do we let God strengthen us for it? Again, read our Bibles. We've got to know if we're going to pray the promises of God and call God to do what he's promised, we have to know what he promised. Again, I was reminded in that that call that we need to know the Bible. Uh, Maybe you've... How do I put this? When the Lord has spoken to me, I have yet to hear an audible voice from the clouds saying, this is my adopted son, Sean, with whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. That'd be amazing. I would love that. Hasn't happened yet. But in this, maybe will, probably not. I'm, I'm fine with that. But in this Zoom call, these guys were calling out some areas of unbelief in my life. And I said, ask God what he thinks about this, Sean. Ask God what he thinks about you. And, and What's God going to say? You know what came to mind uh, for every one of those questions? Scripture. I couldn't believe it. I should <laughs> I shouldn't say that. I was once again surprised. Sean, you're wrestling with this, this thing. What's God saying about that? My strength is made perfect in weakness, God says. <sighs> That's crazy. What's God saying about this? Uh, God is gracious and compassionate, so to anger lavishing his love on generations. The Lord speaks through his word, so we have to be in his word. I cannot say it enough. And I'm preaching to myself here as well, again, again, and again. So how do we strengthen ourselves for rebuilding the kingdom, which is way better than rebuilding a wall in Jerusalem? We read our Bibles. We pray that God would do what he promised to do. We do not serve a God that spun the world like a top and then left us to ourselves. He promised, when my people call upon my name, He promised, 
this is one, okay, this one's, this rattles me. So let me be honest with it. It rattles me. He promised, if you're sick, call on the elders to come pray for you and you will be healed. Whew, my little Baptist heart. It's in there though. He promises, I will never leave you or forsake you. He promises, if God is for us, who can be against us? We got to know these things. We got to pray these things because when we come at this war with this perspective, you know what? If God is for me, who can be against me? If this fight costs me my life, you know what? To live is Christ, to die is gain. And that's hard to say with family, with kids. I, I, I get it. But that's, it's still better. We pray that God would do what he promises to do because we know our Bibles. Then we go ahead and we ask him, God, how am I going to be used here? I don't want to be stunning myself on a deck chair. Maybe I do, but I know that I shouldn't be just stunning myself on a deck chair on the cruise ship. Where's my station? God, if you want me to pilot the boat, okay. If you want me to scrub toilets, love to scrub toilets. If you want me to guide the planes, whatever. Where am I? And we do it, and we do it together, and we don't just hear from God, here's what I want you to do, but we do it. We act on it like Nehemiah did. And look at verse 20. He declares... The God of heaven is the one who will grant us success. It's not about you. It's not about me. Hallelujah, praise the Lord, it's not about me. That phrase, the one who will grant us success, that language is the same as Psalm 1, verse 3. Do you remember Psalm 1 where it says, who will prosper? The one who is like a tree next to the, the water and their roots have gone down deep and are sucking in the life-giving water of God. They will prosper that might not look, that success, that prosperity might not look exactly how I drew it up. Man, if it's God's way, let's do it. Quickly, we see the work get underway in chapter 3. And if you, if you read chapter 3, you look at this thing and you're like, man, this is like a genealogy passage. I don't know about you, but I struggle reading genealogies. Am I alone in that? Who comes to the genealogy is like, finally... <laughs> A list of names and places. Not me. Somebody. Somebody, I'm sure. Somebody. But let me uh, point out a couple of things here that, that make this section exciting. They're, they're, it's exciting, I promise. Because here's another thing. If, as Paul says, all of Scripture is God-breathed and useful for what? Teaching, not just for skimming. For teaching, then there's got to be something here, right? There's got to be. So let me encourage you, when you come to one of these passages, go slow. Go steady. My tendency is to start moving, to get through this, right? Get back to the action. Look for repetition. Look for things that stand out. So I, I want to point out a couple of things that make this exciting. Can we put that first picture of the kind of the artist's rendition, the nicer looking one? That's the one. Here's the wall. This is obviously after the story that we're in because the wall is up. There are kilometers of rock wall that were rebuilt here. And look at chapter 3. Where does it start? We read the high priest, Elisha, and his fellow priests began rebuilding at what? Help me out. Sheep gate. Thank you. Flip to the end of chapter 3. The last verse. The goldsmiths and merchants made repairs between the upstairs room on the corner and the... <gasps> Wait a minute. Can you go to the next one, Sarah Jane? This is, this is hard to see. Forgive me. I'll post it online later. 
But on the very right side, you see Sheepgate. And what we've gone through this chapter is we've gone dun, 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 all the way around the town, back to the Sheep Gate. And why do we start and finish at the Sheep Gate? That's where the sacrifices came into the temple. That's where God was doing his redeeming work for his people. Jesus would walk through that gate 500 years later or so. And so when we read this list and our eyes start to dry and we're not sure why we're still reading this list, we got to look up these names. What's the significance of this gate, of this wall? And we see that they, they circled it. They nailed it. They got it all. It's important. The second thing, if you, I told you not to skim these lists, skim this list. Look how many construction professionals were engaged in this pro- project. How many do you notice? Zero. Nehemiah did not go to PCL and say, hey guys, I've got a project. Can we bring you out? And he didn't go down the road to Exhaw and say, Lafarge, we need some concrete. Send your boys. Send your guys. Send your women. Send everybody. There were no experts here. And let me just suggest, since we are in a building project, I will not be the one swinging the hammer. Likely. I'll put up pictures with a hammer, maybe afterwards. We will get professionals to do that. But here, everybody, it didn't matter what they did, they were brought in. Right at the beginning of, of chapter 3, the high priest is building the sheep gate. This is a guy whose light, his entire life has been set apart for the holy work in the temple. And he's getting his hands dirty, repairing a gate. It's important. I love it. Then look at the multitude of people that are listed, the names that just keep coming from places that just keep coming. There were goldsmiths, there were priests, there were men, there were women, there were children, there were perfumers. How often do you think perfumers built rock walls? Probably not a ton, but here they are. There were merchants, there were homeowners. Everyone had a spot. Every believer has a role to play in building the kingdom of God. Every single one of us. We're not all captaining the ship. We're not all flying the planes. We're not all cleaning the poop decks. We're all doing something, though. Let me show you this from the Bible, Ephesians 2.10. We are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works which God prepared ahead of time for us to do. We're not just here to sit in the sun deck, on the sun deck and, and get sunned up. There's stuff for us to do. 1 Peter 4.10, just as each one has received a gift, a gift, use it to serve others. And I know, I've thought, I know some of you are saying, I don't have gifts. I wasn't given one of those gifts, so I get to just sit at the back. You have a gift. They don't all look the same. If you notice the gift list in the Bible, they don't say, and God gave some of them to be preachers. And move on to the next verse. There's a ton of things in there. We all have gifts, and we are to use those gifts to serve others as good stewards of the varied grace of God. 1 Peter 4.10. The next one, 1 Corinthians 12.7. A spiritual gift is given to each of us, just in case we weren't sure. Each of us, so that we can help one another. Kingdom building is not for professionals only. Yes, some of us have been called to oversee flocks and whatever else, and this is what we devote our time to. We've been freed up to devote ourselves to the word and to prayer, but there's a spot for everyone. Third, this is a group project. Can you go back to that first picture of the the wall? We read later in Nehemiah chapter 6 that this rebuilding project, kilometers of wall, took 52 days. 
without working together, that never would have happened. Nehemiah could have given his entire life and not done that by himself. Without working together, we can never reach the Bow Valley for Jesus. We can, though, working side by side. Again, let me take you to Scripture. 1 Corinthians 12, 12. Just as the body has one, uh, is one body but many parts, all the parts of the body, though there's many, are one. So is it in Christ. Everybody's a part of this thing. A little bit later, Paul writes in Ephesians 4, For from him, from Jesus, the whole body is, is fitted and knit together to be every supporting ligament. It promotes growth for the body, for building itself in love and proper working of each individual part. We need each other. We can't do it on our own. The next thing we see if we run through this list is that it's not just people from Jerusalem that did the building. There's, there's people from the outside the city that came in. Again, if, if you skim, you'll find the, the people from Tekoa and people from here. They, they saw this project and like, yes, we will devote our time to this project as well. That means we, we individuals, we as little old Trinity Bible Church, we have a role to play in the global church. That's why we sponsor a couple of kids with compassion. That's why we sponsor the apps who are headed back to Indonesia in a few weeks and will actually be here on July 3rd for just to hang out with us as they travel through from the Okanagan to Winnipeg and the kind of last time before they go back to Indonesia. So we, yes, of course, look at our streets, look at our neighborhoods, look at our towns and cities, but we also look at our role at building God's kingdom in Alberta and Canada and to the ends of the earth. The next one, maybe you're sensing this a little bit. It's starting to bubble up in me a little bit. We need to be passionate about this work. Look at verse 20. We read of Baruch, son of Zabbai, who zealously repaired another section of wall. Sometimes these words that we don't use as common today, we just sort of gloss over and think, great, whatever. He had a deep concern or an eager desire. That's what it means for this. I pray that God would light that zealous fire in me and in every single one of us, that we would, that this would be said of us, that we are zealously doing good works for the glory of God and for the sake of others. Titus 2, 14, Paul writes, Jesus gave his life to free us from every kind of sin. Hallelujah, praise the Lord. To free us from every kind of sin, to cleanse us and to make us his very own people, totally committed to doing good deeds, zealously doing good deeds. And the last thing here, I've gone a little bit long, I apologize. The people put their faith in God. They believed God was with them and believed that he would give them success. We got to do the same. I, every one of us has some gifts, some skills, some talents. I've got some gifts, some skills, some talents that whatever. But if I do it on my own without the Spirit of God working in me and through me, it's, it's for naught. As we go out, as we step out to build the kingdom in faith, we put our hope and belief in God that he will come through, that he will do what he said to do, that he will empower us to actually get through what we believe he's called us to do. At least eight times in this text, through, from Ezra to Nehemiah, at least eight times, the author reminds the people and reminds us today that it was the powerful hand of God at work. 
it was not Nehemiah's extraordinary organizational skills, though he seemed to have those as a gift from God. It was the gracious, powerful hand of God at work. And so when we step out to build the kingdom, we expect this. And that's hard sometimes. We step out in, in nervousness and caution. And I don't know, this might make me look bad. The people put their faith in God, believed he was with them, and that he would give them success. Listen, again, I, I'm, I'm preaching to myself here again this morning as much as ever before. We are in this together. When we build the kingdom of God, everyone has a role. Everyone has a role. There, there is a place for every single person to contribute. It is a group project. Keep that battleship in mind. There's a job for everyone, and if, if someone doesn't pull their weight, maybe we don't like military references. Go back to the, the Summer Olympics. I think, Gary, you might have alluded to this when you taught us on prayer a few months back. Look at the eight-man rowing or the eight-person rowboats, right? If only seven are pulling, that boat's going to go like this, right? It's not going to stay in its lane. Everybody's got a job. Everybody's important. We pull together. We want to keep our focus on building the kingdom here, of course, but also around the world as well. Strategic partnerships, strategic prayer partnerships, strategic financial partnerships, whatever that looks like. Focus on not just here, but there. We build the kingdom by everyone having a role, remembering it's a group project. We focus at home and also abroad. We want to be passionate. And when we're feeling dry and worn out, we pray for passion. And we trust and expect that God will grant success. Nehemiah faced opposition. We will promise you face opposition as we build the kingdom. But the gracious hand of God is on us. Jesus is with us. He is for us. The Holy Spirit empowers us to stand firm and build even in the midst of disgrace and derision and hostility. Let me pray. God, thank you for this time. Thank you for this morning that we can be together. Thank you for your word that it continues to speak to us and through us. I pray that, yeah, that you would continue to speak, that you would encourage us, that you would fan the flames of passion for your kingdom in our lives, that as we go, we would go with, with eyes to see the needs, the areas around us that need to be rebuilt, maybe first and foremost in our own lives and then in the world around us. And give us ears to hear what you are calling us to do as we work together to build your kingdom. And I pray that you'd give us the strength to stand in the midst of hostility and opposition. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Arnie, would you come?